Participate, engage, speak out, use your voice to be an effective advocate. The Voices in Advocacy podcast examines the diverse landscape of advocacy, exploring the ins and outs of building influence, driving change, and creating champion advocates. It's now time for the Voices in Advocacy podcast with your host, Roger Rickard. Hello, and welcome to the Voices in Advocacy podcast. I'm Roger Rickard, president and founder of Voices in Advocacy, where we work with organizations to inspire, educate, engage, and activate your supporters by turning them into effective, influential advocates. And this is the podcast dedicated to the art of advocacy. This podcast is for the people that work and engage in advocacy efforts for their organizations, be they corporations, associations, trade organizations, and nonprofit cause groups. If you are one of the people that work to build grassroots advocacy and grow your community of advocates, then you are in the right place. We are proud to welcome Rap Index as a new sponsor of the show. Uh, let's face it, today's advocacy arena is just plain noisy. Organizations are stretched. You need every advantage to make sure your issue gets the attention it deserves and your voice heard. The RAP Index is the best way to do just that by finding your stakeholders' relationships and engagement power. Get past the noise. Know who your people know. Go to rapindex.com. That's R-A-P-Index.com. Tell them Roger sent you for a special offer. Now, let's get started. In today's episode, we meet Evan Peck. Evan is the Executive Vice President of Advocacy at the American Society of Travel Advisors, known as ASTA. He is responsible for ASTA's work to advocate for the travel agency community at all levels of government, within the travel industry, and before the traveling public. He manages ASTA's government affairs, communications, research, and legal functions. He has a long list of experiences and accomplishments, including a Master of Arts in Government from Johns Hopkins University. Evan, thank you and welcome to today's show. Thanks for having me, Roger. Great to be here. It's great to see you again. I wish we would be able to do these things face-to-face where you would either have to travel to me or I would have to travel to you. I'd rather travel to you right now, frankly. <laughs> well, yes, because uh, Evan's in the, in the D.C. area, and it's a snow day uh, today, and uh, I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I'm not going to say anything further on that one. <laughs> hey, let me begin. I love asking this question of, of, of the guests to, to kind of kick this off. What is the first thing that comes to mind when you think of advocacy? Um. You know, it's, it's being part of the process. Our founding fathers designed the system as a feedback loop. And it's important for you to play your part in that feedback loop. And it's designed to take into account what people think about certain issues. Other systems aren't designed that way. This one is. That's why a lot of stuff ends up in Congress's lap or state legislature's lap that uh, maybe shouldn't, but because of that feedback system, that's where it ends up. And that's what keeps us busy. 
you know, it, it's interesting because you, you had said the way our system is set up, it's we the people. And I often use this analogy. The, the preamble of our constitution begins with we the people. It doesn't begin with I the king or me the president. It begins with we the people. And, and uh, from day one, we've had a responsibility to be engaged and involved in this, in this process. So how is advocacy then different between what you would, we would normally call government relations and or public policy? They're, they're very much aligned, but where's the line on that? Well, I think where a lot of people get tripped up is between lobbying and, and advocacy. And you know, lobbying is a part of advocacy. So that's what, that's what I do. That's what you do. That's what a lot of folks in the DC area do. Um, but it's bigger than that. It's, it's um, the constituents getting their voice heard, uh, letting their members of Congress, we'll, we'll focus on Congress th today for the most part, letting them know what, what, what the issues are that are impacting, in our case, impacting the, their, their business. Um, but it's not, you know, the constituents not gonna do the same kind of activities that a DC based lobbyist is gonna do. Um, but advocacy is, is very important. And there's, you know, there's even sort of communications components to it. Uh, for example, this year, we've been so very challenged uh, by the pandemic and the government response to it. Um, we, we've found ourselves going outside of our traditional lanes in terms of how to influence the process. Um, so basically putting pressure on members of Congress through their local media and putting pressure on members of Congress and staff through uh, advertising in Capitol Hill publications. That's stuff that we haven't done before, but it's all under the umbrella of trying to influence the process and in our case, make business conditions such that our members can you know, make a living. And it's been very difficult this year. Sustain, them, sustain themselves. You know, I, I think one of the easy ways that I try to explain it to people when I talk about the difference between the lobbying, government relations, public policy is more of the technicality versus the personal. The advocacy is the personal. That's when you can get up there and say, I may not know how to dot the I's and cross the T's when it comes to writing a piece of legislation, but I can tell you in my business, I'm affected the following way. Boom. And you kind of fill in the blanks that the people in government relations and public policy know need to be filled in there to be able to achieve the, uh, the success necessary to do that. Now, you brought up the pandemic and we would be absolutely remiss if we didn't kind of hit on that because our listeners know that the travel industry has been absolutely devastated during this. And with one example, air travel at one point was down, what, 94% yeah. in this country? Uh, so how has that affected your travel advisors? And, and actually, maybe we need to take a step back and make sure that people understand what a travel advisor is. Sure. Well, we rebranded in 2018 to American Society of Travel Advisors from travel agents. So our members run the gamut. We have large companies. We have online companies. We have mostly very small companies. Um, but anytime you're, you're uh, purchasing travel, whether it's just one component or multiple components as a package, and you're not dealing directly with the suppliers, like hotels, airlines, cruise lines, et cetera, uh, you're using 
a travel a travel agency, a, a, a third party to do this. And the value proposition is uh, these folks all day, every day are putting trips together. They know the properties, they know the destinations, they know the airlines, they help on the leisure side, they help folks get the, get the most bang for their buck. Um, and on the uh, business travel side, they help you manage your travel costs in, in, in normal times. Of course, 2020 was not normal time. So, you know, there's been this myth that uh, travel agents, you know, were killed by the internet in the 1990s and they're, it's gone the way of the dinosaur, but the opposite is actually true. When I took this job in 2012, that was a concern that I had. I, I, I suppose I had used travel agents once, once or twice in my, my previous life. Um, but I learned very quickly that this, this part of the industry is strong and growing and, and thriving. Um, again, pre-pandemic, the overall travel industry, the, the pie had been growing so much each year. Uh, and some people are gonna, they wanna book with Delta Airlines and that's how they do business. But there's, there's, a, there's a good chunk that like to use travel advisors. And because the, the pie was growing, everybody was happy, everybody was making money. So we were, we were growing like gangbusters. 2019 was the best year a lot of our members had ever had. And then it all came screeching to, to a halt uh, right around a year ago. So, so really your travel advisors are the guide. I mean, you know, if, if you say, well, gee, I want to go to Costa Rica or, I, you know, well, most people don't know what are the best properties, what are the best value for the properties. Travel advisors ask enough probing questions to be able to find out what your personality fits. Do you want something uh, rough and rugged or do you want a Ritz Carlton Four Seasons type of experience? Uh, and and, and the average person just doesn't know enough about all the infrastructure and all the supplier support within the industry to be able to make those kind of decisions so that not only it's just a question of money, but it's a question of the best experience I can have for the time I'm going to be there. Huh? Right. Or, or trust, you know, yeah. the, 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 the internet, yes, impacted how our members did business for sure. Um, However, it's, there's so much on the internet that it, it almost helps us. <laughs> Complexity is our friend, right? Uh, you know, we use the example of uh, a lot of people, and I have relatives like this too, they just they take great pride in doing their own travel planning. I can find everything, anything I need on, on the internet. But like, we, we've, we've come up with this challenge where it's go and find the best hotel in Budapest, Hungary, right? As, as, a, as a do-it-yourselfer. Um, that's one way to do it. Uh, you can do Google, you can do TripAdvisor, you know, frankly, a lot of this stuff is, is paid placement. So uh, the property will, will pay to be elevated. You could do it that way, or you could talk to somebody who's been to the best hotel. In, in right. um, so, I mean, from a client retention standpoint, from a user satisfaction standpoint, I mean, people who use travel advisors love using it. It saves them time. It saves them money. It just takes most of the stress out of travel. You know, in my career, I've kind of had two pillars. One has been all around the travel hospitality industry, but the other one's always been in the advocacy kind of government affairs space. And they merged in the 90s due to an issue that was taking place in which the, the travel industry, the meetings industry really needed to step up and speak out uh, uh, regarding a Martin Luther King Day holiday and a blockade mm -hmm. that was taking place. And and that kind of shifted me. So I come from a background of, of knowing and understanding travel and everything that you're saying there is absolutely so true. Uh, and, and the thing that I think that you said that might 
be missing for a lot of people is trust. Not only does a consumer need to trust what the travel advisor says and does and what work they do for them, but the person who's the advocate has to be trustworthy to the people that they're dealing with, whether it's congressional staff or whether it is actually elected members. And we'll take, you know, as you had suggested, just dealing with Congress. Um, do you agree with that statement? How important is, is trust in this process? Extremely important. Um, I mean, just, just to stick with the industry side of it, I mean, if you're gonna go visit grandma in, in Chicago and you know you wanna fly into Midway from, from DC, like you, you, you can do that yourself, right? That, we, we, don't, we don't argue with that. But if you're going on a, a multi-generational family trip to let's say Ireland, which we did, um, uh, last year, no, sorry, 2019, pre-pandemic, of course. And, and you know, you're dropping tens of thousands of dollars. Um, you want to make sure that you want to have trust that this is going to be a good experience, and you're not going to get hung up to dry, and you're not going to like stay in a you know roach-infested motel, etc. Um, so trust is absolutely critical, and that's one part of my job that makes my job easier because my our, our members are. They're people, people, right? They're on the phone all day. They're they're solving problems all day. So when we get them on on a phone with congressional staff, for example, they're just great advocates. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm lucky in that regard. They're they're very well spoken. Well, and they're problem solvers too. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're in the middle of that trip and something happens, uh, unforeseen by anybody, or you know. What if you're somewhere and there, there's a bad storm? What if there, you're somewhere and there's an earthquake? You know, what can you do if you're not sophisticated in the knowledge of how to travel and what, what all your options are, where you could pick up your travel advisor and they what can if, immediately... What, what if you're overseas and a global pandemic hits? Ah, yes. Which, which happened to hundreds of thousands of Americans. And, and Absolutely. In those early days, we, we observed a pattern where those who had booked with a travel advisor, uh, because they're, they might be in Scottsdale, Arizona, but they're monitoring all their clients. They're looking for schedule changes. They're looking for any you know civil unrest, you, you name it. Those who had booked with the travel advisor got home with not a lot of fuss. And there were some real horror stories about people who had booked on their own. And it was, at that time, it, you know, it was crazy trying to, trying to get home, um, right, you know, kind of mid-March of last year. So thank absolutely. you for that. That's a good yeah. point. Uh, absolutely. So it makes me think of complexities of the issues that you must have to deal with as a person that represents uh, uh, these companies, these individuals and the people and, the, and in general, the whole travel industry. So briefly, can you kind of highlight uh, some of the areas where are your priorities in the uh, 117th Congress that just began sure. here a month ago? Yeah, um, you know, historically our issues have been all over all over the map. Um, so I came from, I worked on Capitol Hill and then I worked at the, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which is a federally funded nonprofit. Um, and we really had one policy issue that we worked on, federal funding for public broadcasting. That's it. Uh, I got to ASTA and, and that was a federal issue. Got to ASTA and the tra travel industry is so sprawling, you know, it touches all these different areas, everything from labor issues, because a lot of our members are small businesses to, you know, entry and exit issues, Cuba travel, uh, TSA, all kinds of state issues. There are states, some states regulate 
travel sellers, some don't. Um, there's travel insurance issues. Anyway, we counted once and we had either engaged on or actively monitoring 31 different issues. So I went from one to 31, which was a challenge. Um, but you know, post pandemic, it's been a little more cut and dry, to be honest with you, much more challenging, but you know, the issue is it, it falls into two buckets. It's helping our members deal with, you know, respond to uh, work with the many ever-changing government restrictions on travel. It changes almost on a daily basis and it, it's very frustrating for them. Uh, I'll just give one, one recent example was CDC in early January came out with a rule saying, if you're coming back into the country, uh, you have to present a negative COVID test, which sounds pretty straightforward, but um, it depends on what, there still was a lot of travel going on to Mexico and Caribbean. So we had a lot of folks that were over there. What if they uh, have a false positive? What if they have, uh, God forbid, a positive test? You know, what happens then? Are they at the hotel for two weeks at their own expense? And so on and so on. So spent a lot of time sort of trying to help anticipate what's going to, what's coming from, from the government and uh, which is hard. Um, and not just our, not just our government either. I, you know, it, it could be yeah, European sure. governments, Canada, state governments have travel restrictions. So that's been a big challenge. And then the, Small, yeah. Smaller jurisdictions are having different, uh, different rules and regulations. There are basically 50 different state rules on what you have to do in terms of a quarantine or self-isolation when you come back from a trip, whether it's out of state or out of the country. So uh, some have zero regulations and then you have New York where you're supposed to quarantine for 10 days and get a test, et cetera. So it's, it's a challenge. Um, and then financial relief for our members. I mean, that's, that's really been job one. Congress ha has responded. Um, the, the challenge that we face is we are a very important part of the travel industry, but we are not as visible as, just to give a few examples, airlines, hotels, yeah. restaurants. They have, I'm not joking, hundreds and hundreds of lobbyists on Capitol Hill. We have one, he's on the phone with you right now. Um, and and, and it's, it, we're mostly small businesses. Um, and we don't fit neatly in, in, into certain committee jurisdiction, right? Like we're not totally transportation, we're not totally small business. Um, so it's been, it's been un uneven, but that has been our main focus for almost a year now. So you, you bring up a good point because you've got small business, a, a lot of the members. And so as you're trying to use them as a grassroots advocate uh, in dealing, dealing with that, uh, the 31 pillars, but in this case, really two, two yeah. main things that you're having to deal with uh, currently, um, how do you use them? How do you engage them in a process and what do you ask them to do to help get the word out and, and build those relationships that make it personal and build the trust that we talked about earlier? Sure, well, it took me a while to, to learn how to use them most effectively. I, again, I came from Capitol Hill and then sort of a quasi federal job. So I, coming in here, I did not have a lot of experience with sort of how to use the, the grassroots to, to, the, to, the, to the maximum effect. So, I mean, there's, there's sort of, frankly, easy things we ask them to do, like send uh, an email to their member of Congress or make a phone call to their member of Congress. Um, but what we have been doing of late is that, plus uh, whenever we do a congressional meeting, and they're all calls now, you know, they're all Zooms now. Sure. Um, 
and actually in that in that sense the pandemic has has helped the job a little bit because i could if i have a, a zoom with a member of congress i can bring in somebody from their district on very short notice they don't have to travel to dc so and we did a post pandemic we did a 150 of these last year and i think we've probably done another 25 or 30 so far this year excellent whenever, whenever possible we try to bring them onto the call um, and we do our best to kind of prep them a little bit beforehand, but a lot of the stuff moves, moves very fast. So what I basically tell them is, um, we want you to come and tell, tell them how bad COVID's been for your business. Uh, tell them that, you know, you might've got a PPP loan, but you need more relief. And then I'm on the call too, or my colleagues are on the call too, and I can fill in the details. When, when, they get, when it gets into the weeds, like you said, in terms of, well, which program does this fit into and what page of the, this bill? So putting those two together has, has been uh, very effective for us. Well, and in the past, most organizations had one, maybe two legislative days, fly-in days, where you ask people to come in and commit a number of days to come to Washington and to, to walk on Capitol Hill and to deal with uh, creating those meetings. And, uh, and those are great and face-to-face. And we know traveling to do that and to be engaged face-to-face is really vitally important. But you just said you had 150 of them last year. So, and, and on, a, on a previous uh, show, I had someone who said to me, you know, when you go in uh, to a congressional office and most people that, that aren't in and do these trips to, to DC, when you walk into a member of the house their office is so tight and there's so many other meetings going on that you can maybe have three people, four people max on the house side where now if you have a call with an influential member that has a lot of sway over a particular issue, then you can bring in people and you can have hundreds of people on a, on the zoom call. Yeah. And then they're going, Whoa, I didn't realize this or, or having instead of two people from the district, 15 or 20 people from the district. And now they go, I didn't even realize. That's right. Yeah, we had to, uh, we, we've done a, a legislative day, a fly-in since 2014. And uh, it, it got so big, we had to split up some of our big states, Florida, California, we have a lot of members in, in, in the big states, travel dependent states. Um, because yeah, we, we ended up having from Florida 15 or 20 people and you can't just bring 15 people into a that's congressional right. office. That's, that, that's hard enough to do in a leadership office on the Senate side, let alone to do it in the, in a congressional office. And uh, I, had, I have worked with clients where we've had the exact same problem, that there's always these hotbeds of different uh, uh, cities or states. And that does create a management problem when you're dealing with it, with it face-to-face. So eventually, uh, just, just eventually we, would, we split those groups. And, and so one group would see Florida A would see one senator, Florida B would see the other senator, and then they would each do their individual house meetings. It seemed to work pretty well, but there is a, there's, there's a limit. Even you can only split that once, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and we've got some pretty, pretty darn big states out there that, uh, uh, that uh, you can have a lot of people uh, uh, c- come to it. Um, so are you finding now is, is, is it true? I, maybe I should rephrase it that you're finding that you have more advocates now, A, because they understand how personally they've been affected by what's transpired for them for the last uh, year, and B, they know that government can make a difference. 
There's no doubt about that. I mean, it, it, the, the growth has been exponential this year. Um, you know, I'll be honest, it was, it was a tremendous amount of pressure on a very small government fair staff, especially early on. Yeah. Um, it's really me and, and two colleagues um, and all of us kind of have other responsibilities as well. Um, and it was just a, a tsunami in March and April where everybody's was, you know, in a panic, frankly. Um, but we've seen our grassroots engagement numbers, I mean, grow by 10, tenfold. Um, we had, a, let's see, we have, I'll put it this way, we have, we have 14,000 members of the association. Um, and uh, some of our grassroots stuff, we will open it to, to non-members as well, just because we want to have it have have more volume and so we had in 2020 we had 25,000 people engage and uh that's more members than we have um and uh, the last the last record the last record that we had for grassroots engagement was uh on a california bill in 2019 having to do with independent contractors going it was going after like gig economy companies but it would have sucked us up into it uh where we had a total of 2900 messages emails and phone calls that were sent to California legislators. In 2020, we had 106,000 total emails and phone calls from those 25,000 people. So it's really, it's gone like that. And actually, you know, our, our membership grew in 2020, if you can believe it. I mean, so we had this big flood in March and April after the CARES Act where people wanted to know what what's a PPP, how do I get money? Um, so it's been helpful in that regard. I mean, our, our revenue has gone down elsewhere. We, you know, we can't do our conference, our conference and that kind of thing. But from a grassroots engagement standpoint, it's been unbelievable. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting because people now all of a sudden realize, wait, you are the voice for them. And as that voice, I need your help to help me survive in what I'm, what I'm doing today. And that becomes a business investment for them. Uh, and, and a great tool. I'm glad to hear that that has happened. Uh, you know, you have a great number of wonderful tools on the website, uh, advocacy tools for people, and whether that's videos and uh, wh whether it's PowerPoints and whether it's other sheets that you have. Have you been able to provide any additional training and particularly because you now have a much larger volume of new advocates? I'm trying to think. Um, we we have posted a, a tremendous amount of stuff having to do with the, the relief programs. So white papers, FAQs, uh, re recorded videos, and whatnot. Um, in terms of advocacy training, um, it's been the demand has been has been really high. Uh, my colleague Genevieve Strand um, does a monthly um, kind of advocacy training for for our members, and you know I think. In the old days, you know, 100 people would, would come, and now we've got a thousand people coming. Um, but we are going to do our um, we're going to attempt to do our our fly-in in May. It'll probably be kind of a hybrid format, um, and we'll do a ton of we'll do a ton of training around that. Yeah, yeah, it is it, it is important, and and not only do we have the 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 pandemic issue as being one of the issues about being able to do fly-ins, but ever since uh, Jan January sixth. We now have, uh, you know, more of a lockdown around the capital. Have you heard anything yet as to what may transpire and how they're going to have to deal with people that, uh, because they can't, they can't put themselves into a cocoon and ignore people. 
So any word that you're hearing there in DC? No, uh, it, I'm, I'm seeing people do fly-ins in March, April, May that are fully virtual. I think everybody's assuming it's gonna be some time before the Capitol complex is open. I know that ASAE, which is the Association for Associations, um, is trying to get some clarity for those of us who wanna to try to do this. Um, but let me tell you what we're gonna to try to do in, in, in May. Uh, we understand the risks. I mean, we're not even sure the DC hotels are gonna be open to be, to be very honest with you. Right. But we're gonna to try to, there is a, a hunger. Uh, I talked about kind of the online engagement with folks in 2020. Uh, people want to come to DC, uh, just having seen uh, how important this is to, to their business. Um, so people are raring to go, you know, I've had to let them down uh, gently that it's probably, you're probably not going to be able to physically go to Capitol Hill on in May. So we're going to, but we're going to bring people to DC. We're going to have the, the, the hotel, we have meeting space and whatnot. Um, we're going to change the format a little bit where obviously it's not going to be a day walk on the hill, but we're gonna have blocks of time where you'll do virtual calls from the hotel to your members of Congress. And we'll see how that goes. We've heard rumors of that congressional staff is willing to come and meet in coffee shops near the Capitol complex. Um, and also we can try to do, we have a pack as well, which is another very powerful tool. Um, and we'll probably try to do some small group fundraisers as well, but that'll be the general format. So we're coming to DC, but the meetings will be virtual. Maybe we'll be pleasantly surprised in April, but probably not. Yeah. It's a constant moving target. It makes it more difficult. And I, I do know that ASAE is working hard to try to, to get better guidance as to, as to what's going to happen on the Hill. Hey, speaking on the Hill, and you kind of indicated a little bit earlier, you worked for one, a lady that I had absolute great respect for, uh, partially because uh, I knew her niece and was close friends with her niece and then got to, through her, got to know uh, Senator Olympia Snow from Maine. You worked for her on the Hill as a, as a legislative assistant. Share what, what that was like and maybe even from the eyes of being brand new and, uh, and being in that job. Sure, um, it was a great job. Anybody who's worked on the Hill knows that uh, you just, you learn so much very quickly. So. I went, uh, my family spent a lot of time in Maine when I was growing up. I went to Col Colby College, which is in Maine. Um, and, uh, you know, my politics were kind of fluid coming out of college. I was just a young man. I didn't know what I was, what I was doing. I was a history major though. Um, I guess I kind of leaned Republican, but I knew that I, I wanted, like I was a New, New England Republican. So those are the offices that I, that I applied for and um, was lucky enough to get hired by Olympia Snow. Yeah, she's a, you know, your classic moderate Republican. Um, Absolutely. Uh, there's not a lot of them left. Uh, you know, Susan Collins is kind of the, the, maybe the last, I think she's literally the last New England Republican in the, in the congressional de delegation. Right. Um, but yeah, it was a tremendous learning experience. So I was, I was very young as, as most are who's started on the Hill. It, it, it had like kind of a, a library, uh, feel to it when I, when I first walked in because there was just stacks of constituent letters. So my first job was answering constituent letters, um, which was fascinating. You learn to educate yourself on an issue in very short order and be able to write a response where you, you sound like you know what you're talking about uh, and do that all day. So that, that, was, that was good training for you know, what, what I've been doing since. And yeah, I, I, think, I think the average, first of all, the average person would be shocked at, uh, one, how young staff are, 
and we, you and I have had this conversation personally before, but how young the staff are, how incredibly enthusiastic, intelligent, engaged they are, and, and, and how sharp they are to pick up on, on issues and, and what's going on because uh, the complexity of issues that get thrown at them, uh, saying that it comes through a fire hose would be false. It's like being at the bottom of Niagara Falls and, and feeling the impact of everything hitting you at all at one time. Yeah, and, and being on that side too made me realize the, the role of, of lobbyists and, and advocacy, like seeing it from, from that side. It took until I was off to, to really appreciate what had happened. Um, but to need to stress that congressional staff is completely overwhelmed almost every day. And it, they prioritize issues by who's in their face, especially who's in their face that has a constituent home state connection. They do not go out searching for uh, answers really because answers they are- They don't have to. <laughs> that's, that's right, they don't, they don't have to. So our, our rule of thumb was if somebody wasn't in the office complaining about an issue, then it wasn't an issue. And, and this is something I've tried to try to tell our, our members because like I said, in these relief bills of this year, airlines have gotten their money, you know, uh, restaurants are gonna get their money, God, God bless them both. But congressional staff is not going out and saying, let's do an independent research project on which industries have been most impacted by the pandemic. Said nobody ever, right? They're, they're responding to people that are in their face. So that we, we also have to do that. Absolutely. That's a, I think that's a great way to put a button on this uh, from a standpoint of the importance of a grassroots advocacy and people out there getting engaged, involved in the associations that are out there to defend and protect their interests, their business, their livelihoods, their family, et cetera. Any final thoughts on anything before we uh, kind of conclude on this, Evan? No, I think you kind of touched on it. So um, now more than ever, it's important that industry groups have a strong national trade association. Um, ASTA is stronger than we were when I got there, for sure. Our boss, Zane Kirby, has run the membership, done a lot of activities that have shown our, our relevance. But if you work in a certain industry um, and your National Trade Association is weak or underfunded, that serves no one's purpose. So it's important to whatever industry you're in to support your National Trade Association. Make sure it's, it's strong. Make sure it's commensurate in strength with the size of your industry. Uh, we're, we're still not there yet within the travel industry, but um, support your National Trade Association. But you're rowing the boat, to use a travel term, in the right direction, correct? That's right. Wonderful. Evan, how can people reach ASTA or you uh, for any more information? Uh, well, our homepage is asta.org. Um, if you want to take a look at the... And that's asta.org. Asta.org. Um, if you go to asta.org slash advocacy, you can see the, um, some of the, the issues that we're working on right now. Um, and if anybody wants to contact me, uh, actually my contact information is on the website, but I'll just give it to you. It's epec, E-P-E-C-K, at asta, A-S-T-A dot org. Wonderful. Well, that wraps up today's great conversation with Evan Peck of the American Society of Travel Advisors. Evan, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Roger. Yeah. Well, now it's time for the advocacy engagement tip. Now, here's what we know from past lessons 
if advocacy engagement and activation is decreased. People need to fully understand what you do and why you do it. We touched upon that today with Evan. And the key, it is the key, the absolute key to garnering support. If you're not saying it, nobody is. So when people understand the benefits that you provide, they are more likely to support your cause. If you do nothing, you are then vulnerable to adverse publicity, media attention, government regulation, legislation, taxation, and policy decisions that can have far-reaching implications. So does your organization engage, educate, and provide training to your supporters? One should probably look into that. Well, we would like to thank our sponsor, Rap Index. Know who your people know. Go to Rap Index, that's R-A-P-Index.com, and tell them Roger sent you for a special offer. Just a couple of quick notes here at the end of the episode. I would love if you wanted to contribute your thoughts because I know without question that you are probably smarter than I and I need your input to make this better. So in upcoming episodes, you will be treated to inspiring interviews from leaders in the world of politics, associations, and nonprofit causes. If you like today's podcast, head over to where you find your podcasts, be that Apple, Google, Spotify, and now you can even ask ask Alexa, hey, Alexa, play the Voices and Advocacy podcast. A big thank you to Evan for being on the show today. I greatly appreciate your time and passion for helping others through advocacy. Thanks, Roger. And we at Voices and Advocacy work with organizations to inspire, educate, engage, and activate your supporters by turning them into effective, influential advocates. That's it for today's episode of Voices in the Advocacy. Remember, you have the power to be effective and more influential. So go out and make it a better world. We hope you enjoyed today's Voices in Advocacy podcast and look forward to you joining us again next week. To learn more about Voices in Advocacy, go to our website, voicesinadvocacy.com.